right, Luke chapter 7. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, please. We stand for the word of the Lord, sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor, the other we tolerate. Luke chapter 7, we'll pick up at verse 1. Now when Jesus had concluded his sayings, and the sayings were the Sermon on the Plain, not the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, we've studied that. Sermon on the Plain. He's concluded that sermon on the plain in uh, the hearing of the people. Now he enters into Capernaum, which is the hub of his ministry. This is the synagogue where everything came from in relation to his teaching of his disciples. This was his headquarters. He entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when Jesus heard about, or excuse me, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to Jesus, pleading with Jesus to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged Jesus earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, He marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Now it happened the day after that Jesus went into a city called Nain, which means beautiful. It's in the Jezreel Valley. It's a pretty amazing place. And many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when Jesus came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. It was a funeral procession. So the two, two uh, processions collide, Jesus coming in and the dead man coming out, and they collide. When Jesus came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came and touched the open coffin And those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. And then I want to read this to you. You don't have to turn there. It's Ephesians 2. This is what the Lord woke me up to find. Starting with verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I just want to emphasize you and you. He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. Lord, thank you for your word. And God, as we undertake the study of it, Holy Spirit, please lead us into all truth. Minister deeply to all of our hearts. And God, be glorified. You've caused us to come from death unto life. And for those who need to hear the voice of the Lord, that they too would come alive. I pray that you would do this miraculous work today in this place. And we commit all this into your wonderful, caring hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat, please. Fascinating thing about the passage, again, that that, uh, originally piqued my interest, especially with my father, was the idea of a centurion. 
Jesus concludes all of his sayings on the sermon on the plain and do good to those who spitefully use you. Um, don't keep a record of wrongs. Forgive. I mean, he goes through this whole thing. Love your enemies. And, and as he lays out this sermon on the plain and, and this antithesis of the world's view of how we're to operate, you see someone who, who brings a paradigm shift to the way in which we relate to one another. And he is teaching his disciples as they've gathered with him. And as he comes into this town of Capernaum, which is the hub of all of his activity, um, as he comes into this town of Capernaum, there's a synagogue there. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to the centurion was sick and ready to die. And when he'd heard the, uh, about Jesus, and Jesus' name was of renown. It had spread all over the region. Tens of thousands of people were following him. If not over 100,000, they were following him. And his, his notoriety was growing. And so the centurion sends a, a, a group, not just a group, but a group of Jews to Jesus, pleading with Jesus to come and heal the centurion's servant. This is such a, an odd depiction, and I want to tell you why. Uh, they beg Jesus earnestly, the scripture says, saying, for the one for whom uh, you should do this was deserving. Lord, you, you need to do this for the centurion, and here's the reason why. And this is what's fascinating. He loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So the synagogue in which Jesus is teaching and where his ministry would be based was built by the centurion. Uh, in May, we're going to go to Israel. Um, uh, we went there. Uh, we're gonna go, I'm going to go again, not us, but I'm going to go again in October, taking the Lieutenant Governor uh, Dan Forrest from North Carolina. We're going again at the end of October. And every time we go there, we go to Capernaum, and this is one of my favorite locations. Um, we stand at the base of the synagogue, and as you can see in the picture here, the, the stones change. The, the black stones are the, the base of the synagogue that the centurion built. Um, here's another picture of it. On top of it is a third century synagogue that has since been destroyed. But the, the synagogue itself with the basalt, the darker rock, was built by the centurion. The centurion uh, is, is a bad dude. He's He's tough. I'll let you know who a centurion is and and the idea. They are the NCOs of the Roman legions. Uh, They are, the reason why they call them centurion, you hear the word century, it means a hundred years. A centurion was over a hundred men in the legion. Um, They would be picked, handpicked because of their battle ability. And when they would be, um, when they would be titled a centurion, they would serve for 25 years. At the conclusion of their 25 years of service, if they lived, uh, they would be given a retirement by the Roman government, and most of them would end up in the Amalfi Coast or, or in those regions where it's really lovely, and they'd have their retirement communities. And if you've ever been to Amalfi or Positano or the Blue Grotto, you realize uh, they did take care of their centurions, and they all retired there. This centurion, interestingly enough, um, battle-hardened and over 100 men, was stationed in the region of Judea. This was not a good posting. Uh, The reason why is because of all the entirety of the Roman Empire, uh, the the region of Judea was one that was um, continually under conflict. Uh, The Romans deified their emperor, and they were also polytheistic. Not only did they deify their emperor, but they also had other gods and goddesses, and they were polytheistic as opposed to monotheistic. The Jews themselves would not submit, and they continually fought against Roman uh, oppression. And, and uh, if you, you go to Israel, you'll go to Masada, which was the last piece of land that the Israelites held before the Romans completely conquered them and took over the entire region. And they refused to submit to the Roman Empire, and, and not they, they, they were monotheistic. They wouldn't put anyone above God himself. And so the the remnant of these Jews were up on Masada, which is down near the Dead Sea. Uh, It's a place that Herod had built, and it's it's completely on a a mountaintop that's flat on the the top, and he had built a palace there and created this water system that would refill the wells in the limited rain that would come in that region. And the Romans, when they came out to conquer these remaining Jews, built ramps of siege to get them. You can see the Roman encampment uh, as you're up on Masada. You can see where the Romans built their little uh, forts. You can see the ramp that they built to conquer Masada. Masada is basically the Alamo of Israel. And, and And the Romans were hated. I can't emphasize that enough. The Romans were hated. 
by the Jews. They hated the Romans. And conversely, Romans hated the Jews. There was, it, you were in a hot, miserable location where you were continually under fire, fear for your life. You could never bring order to the, the community because ingrained in them were the Ten Commandments and their worship of Yahweh. And uh, it, it was a difficult assignment. And, and this centurion is given this assignment. Well, he's placed in the outer regions. He's at a trade route, which is in Capernaum. And he's there with his garrison of 100 men. And, and while he's there, he starts to assimilate and, and grow fond of the Jews. Here's a man that understands authority. He's under authority. And he finds a God who declares himself to be the God of the universe, that out of nothing he created something. And he starts to see these peculiar people, the Jews, with all their idiosyncrasies and their, their dietary laws and, and all the laws that they would follow. And he begins to kind of culturally mesh himself and, and understand it. And he begins to be moved by this idea of the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, five in relationship with the God who created everything and five in our relationship with each other. And he begins to be moved by this, not knowing this God personally, but seeing the, the importance of all that he stands for. So moved is he that he does good things for those he's oppressing. To the point where the people that hate him end up loving him. They hate what he stands for. They hate who he represents. They hate all of that, but they, they just can't stop caring about him. He's a good guy. Wouldn't that be neat if that was said of all of us? Well, literally, the centurion is living the Sermon on the Mount. He's the guy that is living all of these precepts that Jesus laid out for his disciples. And here's a man who hasn't even assessed a faith in Christ, not really knowing who he is other than his name is of renown and he's healing people. And, and he's so moved, the scripture says that he has a servant who is dear to him. Now the word servant means doulos, bond slave. A third of the Roman Empire, if not more, were slaves. And I'm not talking, you know, indentured servants. I'm talking slaves. They, weren't, they were subhuman. You could kill a slave and not go to jail for it. You could, you could liquidate your slave population and continue on with your life. You didn't have to give any explanation whatsoever. They were chattel, buy and sell, trade. They were yours. You were the pinnacle. You were the elite. You were the oligarchy. You ruled the masses. And, and with this idea, the last thing you wanted to do was to consider anyone human. You didn't want to consider them human. And yet here you have a centurion who's over a hundred legion soldiers and and. He has a love, and the scripture says dear to him, which means family, for this doulos, this bond slave. He cares about him. If he's sick, why am I going to get a doctor? If he's sick, why am I going to spend money on him? Just kill him. Let's get another one. Not this man. This man is unique in the world of the Romans. He has a tender heart, and he sees a man sick and ready to die, which means, what does he have, tuberculosis, pneumonia? What does he have? And he's ready to die. It's not like he has any hope of living. The idea is, this, he is he's on his last breath. And in the midst of this, he realizes, I don't have the money to heal him. I don't have the money to help him. And he's built a synagogue. He loves this servant. He loves Israel. And here he is in a backwater destination that nobody wants to be assigned. And his whole perspective has changed. He's fallen in love with the people. He's fallen in love with their God. He cares deeply about his servant. He sees them as a human being. I find it fascinating in this day and age. I was just reading that the uh, Washington University, or is it Washington and Lee, they want to change their mascot from the Colonials, and their mascot is a, looks like George Washington. And they, uh, all the student body decided that they're going to change themselves to the hippos or the, the I don't know, river something. And you, and you ask him why, and all the student body saying, well, the word colonial is kind of whitey, and it's kind of <laughs> oppressive. Sorry about that. Calm down. And, and, it, and it kind of, it, it's, it, it's, it's, not, it's not good. And I'm thinking to myself, you, you were dismissing history. Yeah, but they, Washington was a slave owner. He was. So was Jefferson. Yeah. What's your point? Well, it just invokes slavery. Okay. They were born into a culture that embraced slavery. And they created a paradigm shift 
to remove slavery from the face of the world to the best of their ability. They renounced their slavery. They enacted laws to abolish the slavery. And you're going to rewrite history and throw them out. And if that is the measure for what we're allowed to study, they were not perfect men or women. But they were great. Never before in the history of the world have we ever had a government of the people, by the people, for the people, where the sovereign is the people. And you have an ability to, to change in the course of human history. But we dismiss that because we virtue signal and we're going we're gonna to rewrite history. And I thought to myself, if that is the way we're going to do it, there isn't a single person in history that will survive that kind of observation. I mean, let, let's look at Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King who was instrumental in the civil rights movement, but we, we, let's get to a place where we're going to dismiss him because he committed adultery. The work that was done in and through a man with feet of clay like every other human being on the face of the earth changed the course of history. But it's so much easier to sit back in an academic seat and be like a donkey that can knock down a barn door instead of a carpenter who can build one. Does that make you smart because you can destroy someone who can't defend themselves from the vestiges of history? I, I, I'm, I'm shocked because that means we have to take the centurion out and this entire passage of Scripture is irrelevant. And my father wouldn't have, been, uh, wouldn't have had a heart settled and would have never been able to come to the Lord. And you know what? Everything my dad did, just erase it. Well, there's no one who can stand up in that kind of scrutiny. There's not a person in the room who will be able to survive that. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what the Lord does here is he says, look, I know he's a Roman centurion. I know he's got his boot on the neck of Israel. I, I know this guy has done terrible things in combat. I, I know this, but I have to tell you, in all of Scripture, I've only marveled twice. One was at the lack of faith of the religious, and the other is the presence of faith in a centurion. And when he says this in front of the Jews and the disciples, they're like, dude, wait, what? What, what? Him? What? Hey. But that's not what they did. When Jesus marveled at the faith of this man, nobody, nobody contended with him. To the contrary, when the centurion said, would you, I'm not a Jew. The rabbi is. Would you go on my behalf and plead for my servant? He'll listen to you. You're Jewish. You understand that world. Would you help me? Of course we'll help you. It would be an honor to help you. You're one of the most remarkable men. In, in, I mean, here he is. He's just laboring over his servant. He says, please help, help my servant. Would you go and talk to the rabbi? And they're like, yes, we will. And they, they go and they, the scripture says that they begged. They didn't just beg. They begged earnestly. It was like, oh, please. They were pleading with the Lord. You, you don't understand. This man is deserving of you helping him. He, is, he, he loves our nation. He loves, he loves Israel. And not just that. If you want to see evidence, he built the synagogue in which you teach. Please help him. Help him. Jesus is like, let's go. He begins to walk, and as he's walking, the centurion sends another set of servants out. And they come up and they say, you don't even have to take another step further. Don't even exercise any more effort. The, the centurion says, you're not, he's not worthy to have you come into his house. I thought it was pretty remarkable. Not even worthy to come into his house. I, I would think that if Jesus had had a conversation with him, this is what it would look like. But of course, that didn't happen in this passage, so that picture's heretical. <laughs> but I love what Charles Spurgeon says in relation to the centurion. He says, two features of character blend in him, which do not often meet in such graceful harmony. He won the high opinion of others, and yet he held a low estimation of himself. It's amazing how in life, when things start going really well and you start helping people, you start thinking it's you doing it. We're not reservoirs, we're conduits. We're just vessels. Don't take any of the credit. And this man kept pushing the credit. You, you're, I'm, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. He would humble himself in the sight of the Lord. The Lord would lift him up. 
He would, he would say, you don't even have to take another step. Don't, don't labor yourself to come because you are the God of the universe. I know authority. I know what it's like to look at a Roman soldier and say, jump, and he says, how high? I know what it's like to command a servant and they do whatever I ask them. I have the full authority of Rome behind me and I have been appointed for this position and I know exactly what this authority's like. So when you go out and you talk to the Lord, you tell him not to trouble himself and you tell him that I'm not worthy to have him enter under my roof. Tell him that all he needs to do is speak the word because his words have far more authority than mine. When I speak, I speak with the authority of Rome. When he speaks, he speaks of the authority of the Father. And when he speaks, he creates out of nothing. He says, light be, light was. He creates life where there's death. He heals. He commands the universe. I don't have that ability. You tell him that all he need but do is speak. I know the authority and the power he possesses is I've come to understand this God you serve. I've come to respect this God you serve. And I've come to submit myself to the authority of this God you serve. And to realize who I am. I'm not even one of his children. I'm a pagan. I'm a Gentile. But if he would, if he'd see fit to say the word, he would heal my servant. I'm a man placed under authority. I have soldiers under me. I can say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And this is what's amazing. When Jesus hears this, the servant's coming out and telling and recounting it word for word. The scripture says, Jesus marveled. I don't know about you, that's pretty cool. God marvels at a human being. Oh my God. Oh my me. (laughs) Think about it. I mean, I think God marvels at me, but in the opposite. Like, are you kidding me? We're going to do this again? Definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again, waiting for a different result. (laughs) Oh, McFly, wake up. McCoy. (laughs) I would like to think he would marvel at my faith, but sadly, he marvels at my lack of faith. He marvels at my continual failure. I think he does appreciate in all of us a humble heart. In me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. God, if I'm going to get through this, the only hope I have is in you. But Jesus marvels. He's, he's, he's blown away at the humility of this guy. Let's recount it briefly before we jump into the back half of the passage. I think it's important. I like what this author says. He believes that just as he, a man with authority, is obeyed by his subordinates, just so surely will the authority, authoritative utterance of Christ be fulfilled even though he is not present where the sick person is. Jews are supposed to hate this man. Politically different. Stands for totally different kingdom and a totally different agenda. And yet he's moved and he loves them. Who? His enemies. Wow, that sounds almost Christian. And he doesn't just love them in word, but in deed. What do you mean? Well, indeed, he built the synagogue, a place for them to worship, a God he doesn't know, to abandon the gods that declare the kingdom he serves. He looks at his servants as human beings and he elevates them above himself. Though he has complete authority to do to them as he pleases, he puts that power and the the power of a man or the strength of a man is measured by the power he possesses that he doesn't use. It wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross. He's God. The power of a man is measured by the strength he possesses that he doesn't use. He remained on the cross for the sake of you and I. Blood must be shed for the remission of sins. He died in our place that we might live. He said 
to telestai. It is finished. Paid in full. Debt paid. He spoke. We live. He spoke. We live. And here of all the people in all of Israel, in the center of his ministry in Capernaum, he picks this guy, the centurion, and says, in all of Israel, I haven't seen faith like this. I am stunned. And nobody argues with him. Nobody. Wouldn't that be marvelous if that could be said of us in the community in which all of our ideals and all the things we hold dear are not valued or cared about. And yet the people that stand in opposition to us would say, I hate everything you believe in, but I can't hate you because you are so nice. I'm pausing for emphasis. Love your enemies. Do good to those who spitefully use you. Profound picture. You can imagine that that servant being healed in the centurion. Just this is the God of the universe. I have done well. And there's something about the faith of somebody that is new to the body of Christ that hasn't been sullied. by the Christian speak and the compromise of the body of Christ. That their faith is so new and so genuine that they do things to just move you out of your complacency. And you realize what they gave up to come to Christ and you realize how little I give up because I'm with Christ. The body of Christ grows and is strengthened when our sphere of influence grows, and it grows because we serve and love the unlovable. I did say that Pastor Steve is a man of faith. He, he's, he's going where what he believes is not understood or embraced. But he has compassion and he's moved. And even as the Apostle Paul said, I don't count my life dear to myself. And, and I, I think how significant that is. My father coming to Christ had an enormous influence on me. I was moved by that. It seemed to me so many obstacles for him to grasp this, but when he came, he got it. He was all in. I think of some of you young folks who've been raised in the church, and you take it for granted. You think this is the way life is and, and you, you want to step out and go find yourself. Okay, so you're experiential. I just have news for you. You're, you're leaving filet mignon to go eat Alpo. And you know what? Shovel it in because that's all you're going to get. But to see somebody who's already been out in the world and has already seen the misery of it that you think is so exciting to realize I would give up anything to have what you have. I think what's easy for Michelle and I in raising our children is though both of our, our parents had a respect for God and though we were raised with moral understanding and we had parents that loved each other and raised us appropriately this idea of daily church was not evident in either of our lives, maybe more so in Michelle's than mine. And yet, for us, it was so exciting and new that I didn't want to be anywhere else but church. I love being in, in church. I love being with people that are different than the ones that I was with. I love being, having my batteries recharged and, and, and being strengthened in the things of the Lord. And that's the picture of the centurion ministering to this realm of people and driving this. this it was a, a powerful illustration of the sermon Jesus just gave. And, and he used a pagan to do it. Wow. And I, and I think of the world, and, and I'll, I'll jump into the next passage. I'll just leave you with this last thought. I think of how the world right now is with the, with the divergence of the ideologies, no God, God, and, and we're doing this. And it's becoming so evident right now. 
And, and, you know, not just in the first trimester do we kill a baby, but the second trimester, let's do it all the way to the third. And if they're born alive, even after we've tried to abort them, they're not really considered alive, so let's kill them. And you're looking at that going, are you kidding me? Why is it not alive? Well, it's not human. What are you talking about? And yet, it's just insanity. And then if you try to stand with logic, you're removed from Twitter, you're removed from Facebook, you're removed from Instagram. We'll shut you down. But I thought you declared tolerance only for what we agree with. I don't get that. And then over here, it just doesn't change. Five commandments with God, five commandments with each other. Two great laws of the universe. There is a God, we're not Him. And our life is to bring Him glory. This, this works. Over here, it... it it keeps changing. I can't keep up with the virtue signaling. I, I, I don't know what's acceptable now. We just add more letters and we, we, we change genders, fluid. I don't know. The biology, forget that. Exchange the truth for a lie. Don't do any scientific study. And if anyone contends with that, remove their evidence, decry it, shut them down, scream, Take them off of anything in social media, and we're going to win. And then you watch as this realm devours themselves, because they can't keep up with the changing system. I, I'm, I'm looking at Joe Biden. He doesn't know what to do. I don't know why I brought that up. And yet, this man has already lived in this world. And he sees a God of absolutes. And he just says, I want my life to count. I love the way this God loves the unlovable. I love this, this, this God who allows me to see his creation, regardless of their socioeconomic status. How this God doesn't see color this God is amazing. I've had that. I want this. Huge exclamation point on the Sermon on the Plain. Couldn't have been a better illustration. And everyone just went, wow. And they conclude that time. They found the servant who'd been raised from the sick. Wow. And Jesus just continues his ministry. And the next day it says it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain. Nain means beautiful. He goes into a city named Nain. Many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. So the word large means hundreds if not thousands are following him into the city. And, and the city had a gate. You entered the city through the gate and you exited the city through the great gate. And as this large crowd following Jesus is coming up to the city of Nain, six miles from Capernaum in the Jezreel Valley, as he's coming in, this, this enormous crowd is going into the city. At that exact moment, you talk about this moment in time where two forces clash and they meet in an area that is a bottleneck. Only exit out of the city, only entrance into the city, the city gate. Here's a picture of it. Boom, they hit. And it says, his disciples went with him, a large crowd, and when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. <laughs> city gate. <laughs> large crowd. And what's fascinating is, and, and this, is, this is the gate, although there's tells in, in, in archaeological digs that cause what seems to be a larger you see the city gate, it seems larger, but as, as tells, ground is increased, um, things get buried. This gate is still in existence today in Nain. So they're, they're taking a dead man out of the city. Yet at the exact same moment, the Prince of Peace and the author of life, the sustainer of life, is coming into the city, and two worlds collide. And it was said that... If you're a rabbi studying or you're a student to be in, in rabbinical studies and, and you're studying and you see a funeral procession go and there's not enough people attending to the funeral procession, you're to stop your studies, put your reading down and join the funeral to honor the dead. 
Everyone in the city would come out to honor their dead. And, and the mother would be in the lead, and they're carrying a pyre. Uh, they, here it says that they carried an open coffin. It wasn't an open coffin. It looked more like a stretcher, a pyre. And what they did is they, they, they did the, the ceremonial washing of the dead, and then they wrapped it in linens with spices, and they're, they're proceeding to the ossuary to take the body. And, and they're carrying the corpse of the son. And the mother's in front, and her life is devastated. It was the dream last night. The mother's love. It's always been used as a, a measure of love. It's been said of me, he has a face only a mother can love. <laughs> a mother's love, though, can only go so far. She couldn't love him back to life. There's some things we just can't do for our kids. I remember the sleepless nights in regards to Natasha. And Michelle and I were physically helpless. We didn't know where she was. We didn't know what she was doing. We'd lost her. Communication had shut down. What we did here caused great concern and consternation. I remember many nights we'd just pray together. There'd just be this gnawing pain. I remember like physically just with my hands laying Natasha at Jesus' feet, just saying, God, take her. I think in a lot of cases in life, we just come to the end of ourselves and we're, we're, un, we're, we're beyond our ability to do anything. And we just can... At those moments, and for me, just visualize putting in the problems and the concerns and the relationship into the hands of Jesus. And you, you think of this woman, her son was her social security. Her son was her retirement. Her son was her health care plan. Uh, when her son's dead, she has nothing. Her whole life is gone. She's devastated. I think that's one of the hardest parts of ministry. I remember walking into the hospital, and this is where Pastor Steve ministered to me deeply. I remember walking into the hospital after the Nordello shooting. I was a chaplain, and I was brand new. And the children were in one room, and Dr. Nordello was behind the counter. I didn't know who he was. And Mrs. Nordello was dying in another room. She'd been bludgeoned. I didn't know what to do. I remember in his wisdom, he just said, Rob, it's the ministry of presence. Just be there. I had compassion. I did. I hurt for them. But I didn't have ability. I couldn't fix it. I remember once as a sheriff's chaplain going into a room a home and the woman took her dead baby and put it in my arms and said, help me bring the baby back to life. You, you can judge me on my lack of faith and you're welcome to take that role anytime you'd like and I don't say that dismissively, I, I mean it sincerely. If God has given you that gift of faith, use it. All I know is I did not possess it at the time. Oh, I, I hurt for the woman. I hurt for the dad. I hurt for the family. I had compassion. God didn't call me to raise the child from the dead. God didn't call me to do anything other than the ministry of presence. I felt helpless, but I brought him to the feet of Jesus. The thing is amazing to me as this crowd collides with the other crowd, the Lord sees this woman. 
It doesn't take long to figure out the one in the room who's most devastated in a family tragedy. Jesus saw it. And the scripture says he had compassion. And the word in the Greek means from his stomach, his, the spleen, just he hurt. It just physically, and you know what I'm talking about. You just hurt. I, 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 I know that feeling. He had compassion on her. And then he said three words that I would never utter. I've done countless funerals. I would never utter these words. I've been in hospitals when loved ones have passed. I've been in their homes. I've been with people in tragedy. I would never utter these words. He did. He said, do not weep. I can't imagine saying that. I'm crying. This is what we've got. This is our human condition. You, you cry. Jesus said, do not weep. And I think, why wouldn't I weep? I have nothing. When he says those three words, do not weep, he's referring to a hope. He comes and he touches the open coffin, which as a rabbi, he, he defiles himself. He didn't have to touch the coffin. He did it because he, he wanted them to know the power over the dead. And in every case in the scriptures, whether it's Elijah or anyone else who's raised the dead, Peter, they all spend time praying or they're laying on the body and, and they're, they're, they're calling out to God to, to, to raise the dead. Jesus just speaks. He, he's life. He comes and he touches this, this, this pyre, this, this stretcher, and the, the boy's in cloth. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. And you know he was listening because he got up. <laughs> and the folks holding the stretcher, he, said, he was dead, he sat up and he began to speak. And, and, and the people holding the stretcher stood still. The idea is they were like, huh. and this is, this, is, this is where Luke frustrates me. Verse 15, so he who was dead sat up and began to speak. What did he say? Why do you have to say that he spoke and not tell us what he said? I can imagine what he said. He said to the guys, why did you drop the stretcher? <laughs> he responded to the word of the Lord first. That's what causes us to come alive. You who were once dead in your trespasses, God spoke to you. You're no longer in your trespasses if you've been cleansed of all unrighteousness by the blood that was shed for the remission of your sins. You're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. He came into the procession of your funeral. And he stands there. The cross is a big barrier to hell. And he stands there. He says, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. If you believe in your heart, if you confess with your tongue that I am your Lord, you will be saved. Saved by grace through faith. It's a gift. You don't have to earn it. I'm here to give it. Oh, you may be a centurion. You may have a track record. You may have a past. But I will cast it as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. I'm speaking to you, the Lord says. Come alive. Forget what is behind. Strive for what is ahead. I want to make you a new creature in Christ. Or do you want to go to the grave without me? I want you to come alive. Hear my word. The boy heard him speak and he arose. He was brought back to life. And what's so precious to me, and this is the dream the Lord gave me. I saw a picture of a boy being given to his mother. I won't say who, I won't say what. 
But the joy on his face, Mama, I'm okay. I'm alive. You don't have to be sad anymore. I needed that. God gave it to me. I can have compassion, but I don't have the ability to raise the dead. I do. Because I am a mouthpiece for the words of life. If you hear these words, you too will come alive. It's not my power, it's his word that's living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword. It does not return void. You have heard the word of the Lord. Come alive. Wake up. You who are dead in your trespasses are made alive in Christ. Do you hear the word of God? And what's amazing is your life changes. It absolutely transformed my mother and my father, transformed me. Everyone who's ever embraced these words, God has done an amazing work. God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up us, us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I think of funerals and the difficulty of them. But I know that God's word brings life even in a funeral. D.L. Moody was struggling and he was set to do a funeral service. So I, I love this. One author writes, D.L. Moody was asked to conduct a funeral service, so he decided to study the Gospels to find a funeral service delivered by Jesus. However, Moody searched in vain because every funeral Jesus attended, he broke up by raising the dead. (laughs) As Christians, I'm going to ruin all funerals. As Christians, we don't die. We fall asleep. We breathe our last on this earth and inhale our first in heaven. We fall asleep and awaken in the image of Christ. I have the assurance of heaven and the hope beyond the grave. He who is born twice dies once, but he who is born once dies twice. God has given you access and caused you to come alive because he has made provision for your sin. You who were dead in your trespasses will be made alive in Christ Jesus. Do you hear his voice? Rise. We have passed out of death into life. 1 John 3.14 How we've been saved by grace. Which brings us to the conclusion that verse 16, fear came upon all and they glorified God saying a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. What Jesus did that day in name he can do for you right here and now. Though you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you hear his voice, you come alive. You may be desperate, you may be grieving, you may be hurting, you may be overwhelmed, but he wants to deliver you and give you a hope. And all you have to do is give your life to Christ. Cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. Are you struggling over your kids? Give them to the Lord. Are you in a desperate situation? Give it to God. Place them in the hands of Jesus. I have to tell you, the Lord knows my kids better than I do. I'm only a steward. He's the one who made them. They've been fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in their mother's womb. And there are times Michelle and I have been beyond understanding and we've been exasperated and we just go to the Lord together in those times of prayer. And then all of a sudden the Lord reveals and we just turn around one day and you just say, God, anything that's given to you first will never be lost. He's never let me down. And and if I'm at a stage where it's a little overwhelming and daunting, I know it's just a matter of time. He can be trusted. Hear his voice and come alive. Life is so much more worth living as the centurion would declare. And then I just conclude as we prepare for communion. Hebrews 9.22 Without 
the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. You see, the elements, Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The bread is his body, the cup is his blood. Blood is the life force of the human body. If you're to take someone's life, they will bleed out. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. We're dead in our trespasses. We have sinned. Anyone who hasn't, raise your hand. Well, I'm not a sinner. Sinning is just missing the mark. Here's perfection. Here you are. If you're perfect, stand up. Let us know. There are standards. There is a God. We are accountable. This isn't just chaos and some cosmic accident. There's a creator. You've been created in the image of God. Fearfully and wonderfully made. You have a purpose and a point. And there's life beyond this. To deny that is to go this realm. To embrace it is to see what the centurion saw. And when you hear the voice of the Lord, you come alive. You're a new creature in Christ. You're cleansed of all unrighteousness. Past, present, and future. Cast as far as east is from the west. To be remembered no more. You're saved by grace through faith. But he's the one who paid the price. His body was broken. That's Good Friday. He was shredded and beaten. And he breathed out his last and he said, To Telestai, paid in full, it's done. Transaction complete. You are purchased off, or off the slave block of death. I've come that you might have life. I'm speaking to you, God says. And you receive that by grace through faith. And you realize that cup was his blood. It's a representation of his blood. You did this for me. Yes. Because I love you. While you were yet a sinner, I loved you. I love you now. And I love you to the very end. Do you hear my voice? Come alive. Do you hear my voice? Come alive. You're on that funeral procession. You're going that direction. You've come into conflict with the God of the universe who is speaking to your corpse saying, arise. Come alive. The joy it will bring your family. Could you imagine that widow's heart? And today's a day of salvation. This table is for you. If this day you've heard the voice of the Lord who said, come to me all you are burdened and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. If you believe in your heart, Confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord. You're saved to the glory of the Father. You are awake. Living people eat. Come, partake. Because you who were once dead in your trespasses, because of this sacrifice, have been made alive in Christ Jesus. Come and celebrate the God who did this for you and me.